to Literary Anything, our Marion Libraries podcast where we talk about anything literary and literary anything. I'm Jane. I'm Paula. Welcome back to April. Yes. Here we are. Here we are. What a romantic month we've had. (laughs) (laughs) With this book you mean? Yeah. You want to tell us something else about what's going on with you, Jane? No, with this book. With this book. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yes. This month we're doing Bridgerton by Julia Quinn. So I should mention right up top that this podcast will include frank discussions of sex and sexual relationships because they are key to the plot in this book. <laughs> when you this agree? Is true. Yes. 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 Mm. Absolutely. Mm. It's not just gratuitous sauciness, it's key element to the plot sauciness. That's right. You don't want to hear about it. Then skip, skip to the end. Yep. <laughs> skip to where we're talking about other things. So Julia Quinn, she has written lots and lots and lots of books, romance books. This is her genre. She is a romance fiction writer. Before she became a writer, she completed an art history degree at Harvard and she then began a medical degree at Yale. I think she was there half a year, six months-ish, before she quit to write full-time. So in between art history at Harvard and then Yale, she'd written a couple of books and they were they were picked up just as she was entering medical school and then decided medicine wasn't for her mm. and has been writing since then. Her novels have been translated into 37 languages. She's appeared on the New York Times bestseller list 19 times to date. She won the Romance Writers of America Rita Award for the 2007 book on the way to the wedding and again in 2008 for the secret diaries of miss miranda cheever when she won for 2010 the rita award for what happens in london she became the youngest member and is now one of only 16 authors to be inducted into the romance writers of america hall of fame oh, i see so i don't think she's the youngest still but at the time she was the youngest member to be inducted into that hall of fame In 2003, she had the rare honour of being profiled in Time magazine, which is an accomplishment that very few romance novelists Mm. have achieved. Mm. In 2005, Publishers Weekly, which is an industry publication, gave to Sir Philip with Love a rare starred review and later named it one of the six best mass market original novels of the year, which is also a big deal for a romance novel. Mm. In 2001... She won $79,000 on The Weakest Link, just as a little aside. (laughs) Nothing to do with her books. Okay. She won uh, money. Weakest Link is sort of like, who wants to, what is it called? Something about a millionaire. Who Who wants wants to to be be a millionaire? Yeah, Yeah, they have a, I assume it's the American version she was on. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. She lives in Seattle with her husband. And this book is the basis of the Shonda Rhimes adaptation, Bridgerton, which aired on Netflix on Christmas Day last year. And it has since made history as the most viewed show on Netflix with 82 million viewers. This was in January, so presumably that figure is higher by now. Mm. And that's her. Yeah, impressive. Yeah. Yeah, very prolific. Been writing a long time. Huge, massive, mega fan base. Romance fans tend to be intense right like they're into it. if you're into romance fiction particularly uh historical romance fiction you're into it mm. you write reviews you read them you talk about it online there's fan fiction there's you know requests for novellas so she's written quite a number of novellas to these uh series of books because people are just mad about these characters and they want more they want more more. yeah did you read the her little author's note at the end of this book oh god did i oh that would be slack wouldn't it (laughs) which bit there was did you read the set the two epilogues there were two yes i did yeah so it was after the second epilogue i don't think i did oh it was it's a lovely little (laughs) story about about how she started writing and how she lived half the time with her mum and half the time with her dad and her dad apparently is also a writer so her mum let her read whatever she wanted but her dad was trying to make her read proper quote-unquote literature and she convinced him that because he started looking at her what she was reading which was like Sweet Valley High and stuff like that great stuff like that yeah I read those anyway you should (laughs) everyone should read that little bit at the back because it was an interesting story about how basically he challenged her to prove to him that it was worth her continuing to read these books that he didn't see a value in and she did that by writing her own 
I love oh, an author's yeah. note. Yes, behind the book. Yes, yeah. you do, don't you? I do, I do. I'm terrible. I never read those things. Oh, really? No. Oh, no. I love, especially, like, from the author. If mm. they have something they want to tell you about how something transpired or how it evolved, how she came mm. to, to write this. I, yeah, I like that kind of thing. Do you watch director's notes on movies and things i don't always but i have in the past when they mm. first like when dvds first yeah. came out and they would have the director's cut where they would just uh, talk over the whole movie yeah. i remember particularly the blair witch project because oh. i was i was like totally fascinated with yeah th- uh, the whole marketing campaign behind the blair witch project yeah i loved it yeah and so i watched the director's cut of that now shall i read the little blurb well it's a longish blurb on the back of the book sure yeah In the ballrooms and drawing rooms of Regency London, rules abound. From their earliest days, children of aristocrats learn learn how to address an earl and curtsy before a prince, which other dictates of the ton are unspoken yet universally understood. A proper duke should be imperious and aloof. A young, marriageable lady should be amiable, but not too amiable. Daphne Bridgerton has always failed at the latter. The fourth of eight siblings in her close-knit family, she has formed friendships with the most eligible young men in London. Everyone likes Daphne for her kindness and wit, but no one truly desires her. She is simply too juiced honest for that, too unwilling to play the romantic games that captivate gentlemen. Amiability is not a characteristic shared by Simon Bassett, Duke of Hastings, recently returned to England from abroad. He intends to shun both marriage and society, just as his callous father shunned Simon throughout his painful childhood. Yet an encounter with his best friend's sister offers another option. If Daphne agrees to a fake courtship, Simon can deter the mamas who parade their daughters before him. Daphne, meanwhile, will see her prospects and her reputation soar. The plan works like a charm at first. But amid the glittering, gossipy, cutthroat world of London's elite... There is only one certainty. Love ignores every rule. <laughs> I appreciate that you... It's in, it's in italics, so I like the whispering. <laughs> Love ignores every rule. <laughs> okay, should we get into let's the get plot? Into yeah, let's do it. So the prologue sets out the titular character, the Duke, Simon's backstory, which is alluded to, of course, in the blurb that Jane just read. But it is that his father and mother struggled to conceive and his mother (coughs) struggled to hold on to pregnancies, any pregnancies that she had. So what resulted was that the the his mother and father had no children and the doctor's orders were that. they shouldn't try anymore but against the orders they tried one last time and his mother was able to conceive and the result was Simon and sadly his mother died shortly after giving birth but Simon's father was just elated to finally have an heir for his what do you call it dukedom dukedom yes (laughs) (laughs) so he shouted it loud from the rooftops he was exceedingly proud that his son was born but then simon who ended up being raised by his nurse at four years old was still not speaking and when he finally did get a few words out he had a terrible stammer so his father assumed that he was an imbecile and that he would never have a proper heir to his dukedom and he re- just refused flat out refused to accept him he lived apart from him he never spoke of him again to the point where his staff assumed that his son had died because the uh, duke just stopped speaking of his son and so this is the breeding ground for Simon's intense hatred of his father. And he kept continued to write to his father, write letters uh, appealing to his father to accept him, and his father never replied. And so part of, uh, eventually Simon uh, overcame his stammer and made something of himself a lot because of this spite he had towards his father in his effort to try and prove himself. Fueled by yes. revenge and anger. And anger, that's right. And because his father rejected him so badly for his whole life, once his father died, or not once he died, but he, his father eventually died, and Simon decided that it was his life's mission to ensure that there is no heir or that the, the heir would go to one of his silly cousins that his father didn't want mm. to inherit the estate. And so Simon decides he will never marry and he will never produce an heir to spite 
his father, who he hated. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> even though we said that there would be no sadness or child abuse, mm. there actually is at the beginning of this book because it's, I mean, it's not the same as obviously what we've read, but mm. it, it was it was terrible how his father treated him. Mm. Yeah, so that was the prologue. And then each chapter thereafter, from chapter one through to the end, uh, begins with an excerpt from the mysterious Lady Whistledown's <laughs> society papers. And everybody wonders who Lady Whistledown could be because she has such intimate knowledge of high society. How does she know? How does, How does she, she know? know who it must she? be one of them. Yes. Mm. Violet Bridgerton is the widow of a Viscount with eight children, whom she's helpfully for the reader named alphabetically. <laughs> and I, I, I'm sure everybody found it very helpful to keep in your mind who is who and who is older than whom, because she's named her children Anthony, Benedict, Colin, and Daphne, or her first four children. Daphne's the fourth child and the first girl. And I'll just put a little, I just clipped this right from Goodreads because I felt like it was a good little overview of the beginning and of who Daphne is. She's also a bit of a wallflower and a spinster in the making, and her mother is determined to make a match. Daphne's brothers are friends with Simon, and they end up meeting at a party when Simon saves her from a creepy friend-zoned suitor who won't take no for an answer. They end up liking each other, although Simon denies his attraction once he's figured out that she's the off-limits sister of his friend. They decide to pretend to have developed a tundra for one another to keep Simon's unwanted suitors at bay while also making Daphne more desirable. Too bad that he ends up compromising her and Daphne's oldest brother, Anthony, or Antony as the uh, audiobook <laughs> calls him, <laughs> calls him out at dawn. So to be clear, Anthony finds his sister Daphne and Simon partially, uh, Daphne's partially unclothed in the garden at a party. And partially unclothed is just her, her shoulder of her dress is down. And I think her breast was partially revealed. Mm. But anyway, yeah, it wasn't like her dress was flung off yeah, and hanging in a tree or something. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. because of this, he insists the Duke must marry his sister, otherwise her reputation will forever be sullied. Mm -hmm. And when he refuses, because like he said over and over and over again, he will not marry and he will not have children... Anthony challenges him to a duel <laughs> at dawn. <laughs> and so Daphne, worried that Anthony will likely kill the Duke, decides she is going to intervene. So she interrupts the duel, riding out there on horseback, escorted, of course, by her brother Colin, because she could never just go out there by herself. And so even though the Duke, again, is determined to never have children, he agrees to marry Daphne after he's told her that he can't have children and she accepts this because she's so in love with him she decides that she'd rather have him with no children even though family because she has such a close family herself family is very important to her and she's always wanted children but she decides that she'd rather have him with no children than to have children and be with a man who would likely pale in comparison to the super steamy duke because she's so super hot for him <laughs> So they are going to marry, and they decide they will do it ASAP. And so before you know it, it is the day before the wedding. And so ensues perhaps the most cringy, <laughs> awkward, and annoying, you know what I'm talking about, right? Conversation, this whole lie, oh, back, yes. lie, lie back and think of England, but also sometimes people enjoy it. Mother and daughter mm. sex talk that I've ever encountered. Yes, Daphne knows zero Zero about the relations, the act, the act, as her mother calls it. Yeah, the husband will do certain things. Basically, she just has this very vague. The mother, no idea. Yeah, the mother is extremely uncomfortable. Keeps like looking out the window mm. and yeah, making sort of weird metaphors. Tells her nothing. Tells her nothing. And but she does tell her that this is how babies are made. Does she, though? She, oh, yes. Yes, she, yes, she does. Her that this is, whatever this, it is. Act, whatever it is, whatever the act is. Which she doesn't say what it is. Yeah, no specifics. That produces the children. Right. So, of course, Daphne's confused. She's because, extremely confused. Yeah. And what do we think about that? 
Um, like, do you think know. people... Yeah, I really don't know. Like, I don't know that I can imagine that people of this era were so clueless about... I mean, surely there'd be some knowledge. Like, you would think people talk to each other. They don't grow up in bubbles. People are on farms and see animals. That's right. I don't know. I mean, it lends itself to the plot. Yes, that's true. So we'll just accept that. We'll suspend our disbelief, as we often do in books, and uh, just accept that Daphne knows zero Mm. about how children are made. So... To be perfectly frank, Simon's plan for how he's going to get through this whole marriage, (laughs) apparently, without having children, is that he will continue to have sex with his wife, but never finish inside her. Which (laughs) anybody who's had the most basic sex education Mm. nowadays would realize is not a foolproof plan. No, and I even read something in one of the articles while I was reading this, that this method, 20% of the time, still reduced results in pregnancy of course yes because that's that's the whole point doesn't work that well (laughs) anyone getting their sex education from us don't do not rely on this (laughs) method so it takes daphne a couple of sex-filled weeks because of course the duke is amazing and Mm -hmm. they're both totally up for it all the time she's loving it weeks at a time in their chamber just like just holding up in the bedroom and never leaving yeah takes her a couple weeks to realize Mm -hmm. what he's doing that that's what he's doing and when she finally realizes it she was talking to the housekeeper about how simon's parents were not able to have children and the the housekeeper says it was terrible because they always blame the woman and it's not always the woman's fault mm. because the man has to have strong seed. Did you <laughs> see Jane's, Jane's face <laughs> in anticipation of me saying the word seed? Oh. <laughs> it's just so pained. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> <laughs> so after that conversation, she's like, oh, and she thinks about what she's mm, seen on the sheet. Yes. And she's like, wait a sec. Ah, the light bulb to, goes yeah. off. <laughs> and she realizes what he's doing. And she's like, you lied to me. You said you can't, not that mm. you won't. And she gets angry and she chucks him out. And so he goes out, he gets super drunk. And then he comes back and they have a conversation. And then they end up that they're in bed together and he's sleeping. But then she wakes him up and he's kind of half drunk and half asleep. And then they have sex and she's on top. Mm-hmm. And he's so overcome in the fact that she's on top of mm, him. Because that's unheard of. Yes. You know. Yes. Yeah. And that hasn't happened with them. And so he's una- unable to pull away from her and ends up finishing inside her. <laughs> and this, I don't know if you, I'm sure as we both mm. usually do, we go on good reason, we read. Yeah, I've got notes about this bit. Okay, yeah. should yeah. we pause here and talk? Because this is a very controversial mm, it is. scene yes. on Goodreads. And I didn't go like super into Goodreads, but it seems like the most recent yes. reviews on Goodreads are one-star reviews and largely because, because of, of this, this one scene. Bit. Yeah. yeah, I read a few things because there's quite a number of articles about it not just on goodreads but there's quite a few commentary pieces i guess on this particular scene oh good mostly because of the show of course yeah because i wanted to talk about that too how the show uh, handled it it differently yeah yeah Yeah, i mean you know this book was written 21 years ago this is not a new book so i guess attitudes and understandings in regards to consent have changed or are more vocalised, I guess. We talk about it more now. Yep. I do wonder if it, if she had written this recently, whether she would write that differently. But it's in, it's a fairly integral plot point for the rest of the book mm. as well. It was handled handled less non-consensually in the TV episode. Yes, let's talk about that. Because in the yeah. TV episode, he's not drunk or asleep. Mm. It's much more... He's enthusiastically involved. Yes. Which, you know, if we're going to talk about consent, we always want enthusiastic consent. Absolutely. Enthusiastically 
into it. So it's much less non-consensual in the, in the episode I found than the book. And I did find, I, when I read it in the book, I was like, ugh. Okay. That's a bit blur. Didn't even, didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even, maybe, I don't know. I, it didn't even twig with me. I was just like, yeah. oh, yeah. It was kind of shitty of her, but yeah, I didn't think of it in a rapey way at mm. all. And also, I did, I did feel only because he was so drunk in the right. book. I think he said they said he was but slightly yeah, still intoxicated, I did, but it didn't ruin it for me. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's well, the other thing about the show is that in the show she was more strategic about what she was planning to do. I felt like mm. there was more forethought. Like she put two and two together and she realized, oh, that's what he's doing. So this is what I'm going to do. Whereas right. in the book, yeah, it kind of right. just happened in the moment. And yeah, I feel like true. she had less... Less premeditated. Mo- yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel like it's it's one of those, if you reverse the genders, how would it look? Kind and of that's what lots of people have and it said. Would look bad. <laughs> right. But here's my problem because I don't I think saying if you reverse the genders mm. then this is how it would look is too simplistic because yeah. you cannot just reverse the genders. Because what I think we need to talk about when we talk about sexual assault is power dynamics. Mm. And so you can't just flip the genders because women and men do not have the same yeah. power dynamic, especially in the eighteen hundreds. So I think, you know, at that time, men had all the power. Mm. And then it also talks about how strong the Duke was. And yeah, and, and how she's a tiny slip of yes, a thing. Yes, and he's yeah. always, like, lifting her up and walking up throwing the stairs and throwing her on the bed and yeah, all that stuff. So I think... <sighs> I d- it didn't ruin it for me. Mm. I did... It did twinge a little bit of that, ooh, because it, it, it read differently to the... And because I watched the show before I read oh, that's the book. Right. I might have felt differently if I'd done it the other way around. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, maybe I didn't. Yeah. You know, there was enthusiasm present, so it didn't. On the show, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. And then when you saw it here, it's obviously different. Yeah. So. Yeah. I also but think lots of people weren't happy with that. No. Lots and lots but of I don't people. think it helps any conversations about non-consensual sex to inflate this to saying As rape. The, yeah. I, yeah. I think, yeah, I don't think that's helpful. I think, and I think that there's a difference between saying, I don't want to have children because mm. I have this vendetta against my father and I don't want to have sex in my body as my body. I mm. just think... Oh, it's different. Yeah. yeah. I agree. But then I reread the scene and the part where he assumes afterwards whether she did or she didn't which Mm. i don't think she really did but he assumes that she planned it and then it propels him into his seven-year-old self and then he Mm. starts to stutter again on that second read when i read that part because i thought i think the other thing is how does it impact the person when when i reread it it makes him it kind of throws him back into his seven-year-old self where he had no power with his Mm. father and made him start to stutter again Mm. so that's pretty upsetting yeah i was i kind of felt one way about it initially and then on a reread was like "Mm, actually yeah not great yeah but anyway of course daphne manages to convince simon that in continuing his Mm -hmm. vendetta against his father and refusing to have children he is living with his intense hatred even though his father isn't alive anymore and that the best revenge would be to just let go of his anger and live his life the way he wants to live and so the epilogue is lady whistledown's gossip rag announcing that the duke and duchess are finally having a boy after three girls so this is many years later obviously and then there's even a second epilogue (laughs) after that which is 14 years later and Daphne finds herself pregnant again at this late stage in her life. And mm-hmm. she's very upset. What will Simon think? And of course, he's overjoyed. And it's amazing. And then it's revealed that their nephew, Colin's son, has a stammer. Mm. And Colin and his wife come to Simon and Daphne's place for advice from Simon. And his reply is that it doesn't matter as long as they love their son then all will be well. 
but it reignites his curiosity about his father's letters because yeah, we haven't mentioned this yet, but somebody from his father's past approaches the both of them to say mm. that he's his father asked him to give these letters to Simon and he's never opened them or wanted to open them. But because of this thing with uh, his nephew, it, it reignites his curiosity. So he has Daphne open them and read them herself. But she reports that they're all just mundane accounts of his business affairs. And so then he just chucks them into the fire. Mm. The end. <laughs> uh-huh. are, are you fe- I, I am certainly feeling trepidation about talking about how I feel about this book. Why? How are you? <laughs> Why feel like that? Because we... When we chose this book, we Mm -hmm. said, people read what you want to read. People like what they like. We have no judgments. Mm. So what are you saying? You are going to judge it now and slate it. One of the things (laughs) that historical romance gets (laughs) accused of is being cliche. Mm. I feel like all my complaints about this book are super cliche. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I mean, I haven't read a lot. I don't think I've actually ever read a historical romance piece of fiction before, but I've read lots of contemporary romance romance novels. I found them very thematically similar. Right. Brooding, damaged male protagonist, forthright, opinionated female protagonist, female breaks through icy exterior of male, changes him for the better, the end. You just, yeah. It's like Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. It's all of like them. All, all of them. them. Yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't See what mean I mean? But that doesn't mean that's bad. Right, you know, okay. Well, I, I was engaged. I read it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd start off with the things that I liked. Yes, go. Okay. Yes. I liked the prologue. Mm-hmm. That was, at that point, I was like, oh, oh, I'm into this. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I like this. I liked Daphne's relationship with her mother mm-hmm. because they have a very close, it's aside from that super cringy sex, sex talk, sex talk yeah. <laughs> they have a really good relationship. And I feel like I don't remember when I've read a book where the mother-daughter relationship mm. is super tight and loving. I liked the steamy scenes. Yeah. I appreciate the tension between the character's desire for each other and the Duke's not wanting to have children. I thought that however flawed his methods were, I thought that worked mm-hmm. for the for the steamy scenes. Uh, yeah. What about you? Jane was sitting back waiting for this big long list. <laughs> I liked I liked the relationship as well with the whole Bridgerton family. I yes, quite true. En- I quite enjoyed their interactions with each other and their what's the word their dialogue with each other. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind the steamy scenes either. Steamy scenes. That's so old lady. The Is it? the raunchy. <laughs> Sexy, the sex scenes. We can say it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought they were quite good. Okay, here, here's what I didn't like. Yeah, okay. go on. And this is where I think I'm going to have to just go with Shakun Songu to each their own. Yes. Yeah. Because one of the things that I enjoy as a reader is wondering and trying to guess what's going to happen. So mm-hmm. a lot of the time while I was reading this book, I felt like, what is the point? Because we know they're going to end up together Mm -hmm. and I should maybe be more it's the journey not the destination I think that's probably you know Mm -hmm. you have to just uh, um, enjoy that and I also yeah I I think about like for example sometimes at the end of the day I just want to sit in front of the tv with my dinner and my kids and we just re-watch friends episodes Mm -hmm. and obviously I know exactly what's going to happen because I've seen every episode a bajillion times yeah but it's very comforting yes and I assume that that is what readers of this Mm. genre enjoy yeah I think you're spot on I think that it's a comforting thing it's it's nice I'm a bit of a uh, I like to I like to know that I don't need to stress out when I'm reading right. things or watching movies. So it's quite nice opening the book up knowing I'm not going to be worried or stressed about anything this whole time that I'm reading this. Right. It's going to be fine. Because it's all going to work it's out in the gonna end. It's all going to be fine. Yeah. That's not – I don't enjoy that all the time, but it's a nice reprieve sometimes. I don't, I don't have an issue with it being fairly vapid and tropey and, you know, just – 
You just go with it. It's like a rom-com movie, you know, it's how it's going to end generally. and That's true. I know. feel like there are more twists and turns yeah. in a rom-com. The other thing about this is how linear it is. Mm. And I guess, I don't know when I've read a book where it's just, I mean, I, there's the prologue, that's obviously mm. back in time, but like, and again, I guess, again, people probably enjoy that. It's just then, then the next day, and then the next day, and then you ju- it chugs along like a train. Mm. There's no waiting for the action. It's all just mm. being hand-fed to you the whole time. And I, I just didn't enjoy that. <laughs> I like having twists and turns. I like having a bit of a lull and then getting mm. back into the action. And yeah. We're finding this really difficult to talk about. I knew I was going to. You know what? It's because this is such a well-loved series. Mm. It's a well-loved genre. Like you said, fans are intense about this genre. And so saying that I didn't like it, I I feel badly. Yeah. I I didn't not like it. It was fine. It was a nice little... You know, reprieve from some of the other stuff that we've been reading. That's <laughs> for sure. That's for sure. I, you know, I read it quickly. I, f- I did find it slow going in some parts, and that's probably because it's set in Regency London. And you know, you're kind of thinking, get to the point. <laughs> you know, I might have been a little bit bored had I not seen the TV series because the see the series is so much more multifaceted. Yes, there's lots of other storylines intertwined with Daphne and Simon's storyline so this I wasn't expecting it to just be Daphne and Simon yes that's what I mean it's very monofocal yeah I thought it might have a bit more about you know whistle down who's that a bit more about with Lady Danbury you know the tv series has got these characters and these side plots yes which keep it you know pacey yes and the characters are much more rounded yeah Yeah. they're not so two-dimensional yeah they're not quite so flat are they i read the entire whole book in an english accent (laughs) in my head and now jane will perform that (laughs) for you (laughs) come on jane absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) well i listened to the audiobook so i did Mm. get this whole book in an english accent and i will say uh, to add to the list of things that i liked the audiobook version the reader of it is brilliant mm. she does a fantastic job you can absolutely just sit back and sink into it and the characters they don't seem like all just a woman putting on a voice it's, she does yeah. a really good job i was surprised i understand that i haven't got to the end of the series yet i have started watching it mm-hmm. but i understand that at the end of the series you find out who yes. whistledown is yes what did you think about the fact that you don't find that out at the end of this book. I think Whistledown's presence in this book is so much of a lighter touch than it is in the TV series. Ah. So I didn't really think about it at all mm. throughout this book. I was I I was surprised until I read the her note, and then I understand that she's mm. going to kind of put that through yes. the other books in yes. the series and then reveal towards the end and she said she was having too much fun with Whistledown she didn't want to yeah so I can understand that but if 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 I was looking at this book as a singular Mm. entity I would have thought what the heck why what's the point of the the whole Whistledown thing and everyone wondering who she was and I also thought it was interesting that she didn't address the Simon's father's letters until the second epilogue I was thinking like what's the point in these what's the point in the letters well I mean, I guess uh, this goes against what I was just saying, that you know exactly what's going to happen. I assumed mm. that he would find the contents of the letters and he would... There'd uh, be some resolution. Yeah, somehow. and he would say, oh, you are a wonderful son in the mm. end and I'm sorry. And then that's yeah. what would tie it all up. And there wasn't that. No. So I guess I shouldn't be so uh, condescending and say, I know everything that's going to happen because mm. that didn't happen. But mm. I found it very unsatisfying. Yeah. Yes, to introduce the letters and make them seem something they're not Mm. i mean he didn't read them himself maybe they did say something different but she certainly horrible well she oh she just kept it to herself herself. and well it'll come out later yeah maybe he still said you're you know an imbecile and (laughs) horrible heir and the worst son ever right she didn't read that she just made it up right and then she'll say it in another, mystery. <laughs> another book and he you won't be to able read. to corroborate it because the, the letters are all burnt. You'll have to read book two now to find out. <laughs> <laughs> she 
So that was the Duke and I. I didn't not like it. I found it a nice little light, read it in an afternoon kind of a thing. Right. Relaxing. Right. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> but I did like some things, those things that I mentioned. So, yeah. yeah. Right. On we go. Listener feedback. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. We get everybody. I thought I'd just stick this in here because the question that we have is a question about historical romances. So we just finished talking about one. Mm-hmm. And this is a question from Renya, who's uh, one of our staff members and who we've talked about before on the podcast. And she asked a bunch of questions about mm-hmm. historical romances, but I plucked one out for you, Jane. A lot of historical romances deal with modern day issues, i.e. women's rights. How important is this? Oh, Renya, of course she asks us <laughs> a very... Asks us the tough the questions. Tough intellectual questions. I don't think, and I'm speaking from my own perspective, Mm. I don't think that I would enjoy reading a book if the true realities of women's lives in Regency England, for example, Mm. were in the book. Right. That would not be very enjoyable to me. Right. So if you, I guess if you wanted to know about that, you'd read nonfiction then, and in, yeah, in be depressed about how horrible how horrible their mm. lives were, and how downtrodden they were, and how ill treated they were by society and the men in their lives and each other. So, I, as a reader, I don't think I would enjoy reading something if it didn't have that element in it. And that's that's probably a point to mention is that I haven't read any of her other books, but. Uh, Julia does talk about, and I'm going back to my notes here, she's quite vocal about this is a historical fantasy romance fiction. This is not an accurate reflection of the attitudes and viewpoints of any of the females that are, you know, it's not representative of its time right. at and, all. And people will say that. They'll say, but women wouldn't act mm, like that at that time. Of course time. not. Yeah. But you, I wouldn't want to read it otherwise. <laughs> That's not nice. That's horrible. (laughs) But if you were reading, I don't know, Philippa Gregory is probably not a good example because her female characters tend to be fairly feisty as well. But look at Hamnet, perhaps. Right. You know. That's right. Agnes was a strong female character, but she was still sort of downtrodden and there was still probably a more accurate reflection of... The time. The times mm. and what she was allowed to do and not allowed to do. That's true. That's a very good point. If, if we're, re- we're reading romance, it's going to be hard for us to be, feel all story-eyed and romantic if yeah. the women are just... Yeah, in the kitchen. All the time with all their kids and whatever. Climbing all over them. <laughs> that's not, not hot. Very rom- <laughs> yeah, that's not <laughs> That's not No, hot. not hot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Renya. <laughs> That was a tough one. It was. Uh, We actually have one more. Are you ready? Yes. This is a question from Jasmine, and this is what Jasmine asked. Hi, Paula and Jane. I have a question for both of you in relation to the Duke and I. What would your secret alias be if you were the town gossip? So, for example, we've got Lady Whistledown in this series, and Dan was Gossip Girl. So what names would you guys act under? Oh. (laughs) It's <laughs> a tough one, right? Oh my gosh! I wish you'd prepared. I know me with that I've had one. I've had the benefit of pre-listening to that question. Well, you answer then. Well, and even still, I don't have a good answer. <laughs> except for I thought of something for you. Oh, what is that? Because recently, Jane just—I was talking about my friend in Canada who reads Laney Gossip, mm. and Jane told me that she also likes Laney Gossip. So then I thought you could be Janie Gossip. <laughs> <laughs> but then That's somebody <laughs> pointed out to me that it's supposed to be Yeah, they would know immediately secret. that's yeah. me. <laughs> so that just, it just still doesn't alias. work. That's the opposite of an alias. <laughs> it's just flat out you. <laughs> I have no idea. Yep. I don't know. I know. I've been thinking about it for a whole day. I still don't know. <laughs> I don't have a good pithy answer. really tough question <laughs> this week. I'm going to take that one on notice maybe. Okay. Tell us we'll, next month. Yeah. And yeah. you can tell us next month okay. too. If I've thought of anything. Have you read anything else this I month? I have. I have a few did not finishes, which I'm not going to talk about, but I read a book 
called, well, I listened to a book called Untold Resilience by Future Women. So it's an anthology of interviews, I guess. There's 19 different women tell their stories of resilience. So this is based on hours and hours of interviews from their homes during last year's lockdowns. Ah. So this was written last year. So there's, I think it was put together by Jamila Rizvi. I don't know if you've heard of her. Yes. I think so. Australia, all women interviewing all women. So we hear from stories from a diverse group of women, all older women who have survived unimaginable global events, tragedies, heartaches. The beauty of this book is the diversity of voices. So we're hearing from refugees, migrants, Jewish women who lived in concentration camps when they were children, obviously, in World War II, women who were stolen from their parents and placed with white families, so stolen stolen generation women, Mm -hmm. surviving domestic abuse, surviving natural disasters, the death of a child, personal tragedies. So this sounds like it would just be the most miserable book ever, but I came away from this feeling really amazed and inspired and hopeful. These these women are amazing. They're all... I think the youngest one was probably in her 60s, but most of them were in their 70s, 80s -hmm. and even 90s. It was really amazing hearing about these huge big historical events from a woman's perspective, often... Historical accounts are driven by male voices. So it was a welcome change to hear from these interesting and resilient older women. And, you know, some of them, you know, I've talked about this before, but the minutiae of what it was actually like in a concentration camp. We've Mm. all read books and learnt at school and and watched documentaries about it, but the actual really little tiny details about what it was actually like... It was fantastic, really quick and really easy to read. Wow. And you said you got that on Libby? Yes, Libby. Mm. It's on Libby as an audio book. You can get it as an e-book as well. So it was a, I think it was designed to provide hope and perspective at a time of you know, global distress, really, and so, turmoil. So if it was an audio book, ha- was it read by the different people or was it read by the author? Or I think it was read by the interviewers so there was about I don't know five or six different women journalists who interviewed these oh. women and they read their story I see right yeah, so that was good so it was different voices uh and it was yeah it was, it was a great book really interesting really inspiring and you could hear with some of them it's the first time they've ever been really even asked to wow. tell their story and it was yeah it was emotional but not not depressing at all right well, that yeah. sounds great yeah really good book so that's Untold Resilience. Well, I I think for the first time since we've started doing this podcast, I've read nothing else. <gasps> Get out. I know. I'm in the You're middle. You're fired. I know. <laughs> that's it. I'm out of here. <laughs> Get my stuff. <laughs> that's I'm, okay. I'm in the I middle mean, of were, a couple of things. But. You were clearly enthralled with Simon Bassett <laughs> and his raunchiness. It's fine. You read it twice, didn't you? <laughs> you read it twice? I most certainly did not. <laughs> Uh, yeah, fair enough. Any yeah. news? Uh, the only bit of news I have is for those of you who missed Adelaide Writers Week or missed events at Adelaide Writers Week that you are sad about, you don't have to be sad any longer because <laughs> um, Adelaide Writers Week has a podcast. So just look up Adelaide Writers Week wherever you get your podcasts and all of the events are on there. It's really exciting. It's the first time they've done that. So I'm really excited about that. And it might be worth, if you were interested in our book last month, we talked about Maggie O'Farrell uh, speaking at Writers Week and we watched that. So that might be, if you are interested in reading Hamnet, uh, that might be a nice little companion podcast to listen to to compare what we said, what she said, and the book. Yes, true. Yes, I I missed a lot of Writers Week because I was sick, which I was very sad about. So mm-hmm. I've already gone back and listened to one particular one. Did that you I was listen sad about. to is it Julia Baird who did phosphorescence? She spoke no. and we both missed her. Yes, I wanna listen to her. I wanna listen to Pip Williams. Mm. I wanna listen to Catherine. Uh, that's the one I listened yeah. to. Oh, you did. <laughs> Catherine <laughs> Tamical Argyle with her book The Things She Owned. That's the one I Lovely. listened to. Yeah. That's one. Yep. So yeah, heaps there though to right. go back and revisit or visit for the first time. I've got a couple of books to talk about that are coming out 
this month. There's yes. Katie Nunn. She has written, let me find out, The Botanist Daughter. That was a book that was out a couple of years ago that lots of people, beautiful cover. Yes. Lots of people loved that book. She's got a new one called The Last Reunion. Now, the blurb's a bit confusing, so I'll read around it a little bit. Five women come together at a New Year's Eve party after decades apart in this thrilling story based on a brave group of Australian and British World War II service women. So it, start, it's, it looks like it's the book is spread across three periods of time. So it starts in Burma, 1945. B, Plum, Bubbles, Joy and Lucy, five young women in search of adventure, attached to the 14th Army, fighting a forgotten war in the, in the jungle. Assigned to run a mobile canteen, navigating treacherous roads and dodging hostile gunfire, they, they become embroiled in life-threatening battles of their own, battles that will haunt the women for the rest of their lives. And then it skips to Oxford, 1976. At the height of impossibly hot English summer, a woman slips into a museum and steals several rare Japanese netsuke, including the famed fox girl. Despite the offer of a considerable reward, these tiny, exquisitely detailed carvings are never seen again. Skips then to London, 1999. On the eve of a new millennium, Olivia, assistant to an art dealer, meets Beatrix, an elderly widow who wishes to sell her late husband's collections of Japanese art. Concealing her own motives, Olivia travels with Beatrix to a New Year's Eve party deep in the Irish countryside where friendships will be tested as secrets kept for more than 50 years are spilled. It reminds me a little of maybe a Kirsty Manning book, that sort of historical mystery women, oh, yes. Art. you know, jumps, yeah, jumps between periods of time. So that's out this month. You might like the sound of this one. It's called Greenwich Park by Catherine Faulkner. Helen has it all. Daniel is the perfect husband. Rory's the perfect brother. Serena is the perfect sister-in-law. And Rachel, Rachel is the perfect nightmare. (laughs) When Helen, finally pregnant after years of tragedy, attends her first antenatal class, she is expecting her loving architect husband to arrive soon after, along with her charming brother Rory and his pregnant wife Serena. What she is not expecting is Rachel. Extroverted, brash, unsettling, unsettling single mother-to-be Rachel, who just wants to be Helen's friend, who just wants to get to know Helen and her friends and her family, who just wants to know everything about them, every little secret. A compulsive, twisty page-turner about secrets, lies, perfect houses and perfect relationships. Must read for fans of suspenseful thrillers and authors like Michael Robotham, Robin Harding. Mm. So it sounds slightly single white female-ish. Mm. Yeah, kind Perhaps. of hand that rocks the cradle. Yeah. Maybe. Perhaps. Maybe. Mm. I don't know. It's not. I don't think I'll read that, but <laughs> some people like that sort of thing. <laughs> I do, I do. I like a good suspense thriller. Now, these two I do want to read. One is called Old Seems to Be Other People by Lily Brett. This is out this month. It's a disarming and gently self-deprecating collection of vignettes about ageing. Lily Brett gives us snapshots of her everyday life in New York, sparkling with wit and wisdom. Old Seems to Be Other People explores the hilarity, challenges and poignancy of getting older. Stories are simultaneously hilarious, serious and utterly irresistible. I thought that sounds lovely. I love things set in New York. <laughs> old, though, I don't know how old she is. The author? Yeah, like challenges of getting older. Mm. This, I, haven't, I don't know anything about Lily Brett. Is she 90 or right. is she older as in, oh, now I'm going to be 25? Yeah, because if that's the mean? case, just go away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> exactly. It's old is relative, isn't it? It is. There's a book called World Travel, An Irreverent Guide, and it's about Anthony Bourdain, and it's uh, written by him and with Laurie Woolliver. So it's a tr- this sounds like a travel book. It's nonfiction. It's a travel book. It's a collection of entertaining, practical, fun, and frank travel tips and guides that gives the readers an introduction to some of um, the most famous and favourite places that he travelled to, and it's written in his own world. So it's obviously... You know, they've collected things over mm. the course of his life that he's written and published and pulled them together. They've got supplementing his own words are essays by friends, colleagues and family that tell even deeper stories about where they travelled to, what they did and their time with him. So it sounds like a bit of a slightly biographical mm. travel, food, mm. you know, and it goes, there's chapters on Borneo, 
Sydney, Melbourne, New York, all around the world. Oh, it so sounds like heaps of people are going to yeah, be. Yeah, I think that would be quite a nice sounding book. Mm. So that's it. They're just a couple of bits that you might be interested in for this month. Thanks for that, Jane. That's okay. Shall we announce our yes. new book? Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so our book for May is going to be Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. So this is like, again, a huge departure. It mm-hmm. could not be more different from yes. Bridgerton. Yes. <laughs> Which, okay, I'm just, full disclosure, I'm super happy about. <laughs> so here's the little blurb. Reese almost had it all. A loving relationship with Amy, an apartment in New York City, a job she didn't hate. She had scraped together what previous generations of trans women could only dream of, a life of mundane bourgeois comforts. The only thing missing was a child. But then her girlfriend, Amy, detransitioned and became Ames, and everything fell apart. Now Reese is caught in a self-destructive pattern, avoiding her loneliness by sleeping with married men. Ames isn't happy either. He thought detransitioning to live as a man would make life easier, but that decision cost him his relationship with Reese, and losing her meant losing his only family. Even though their romance is over, he longs to find a way back to her. When Ames's boss and lover Katrina reveals that she's pregnant with his baby and that she's not sure whether she wants to keep it, Ames wonders if this is the chance he's been waiting for. Could the three of them form some kind of unconventional family and raise the baby together? This provocative debut is about what happens at the emotional, messy, vulnerable corners of womanhood that platitudes and good intentions can't reach. Tori Peters brilliantly and fearlessly navigates the most dangerous taboos around gender, sex, and relationships, gifting us a thrillingly original, witty, and deeply moving novel. I'm looking forward to reading this. Doesn't this just sound like nothing you've ever read before? Certainly I've never read anything like this Mm. before, and I'm really excited about it. Set in New York, which this, I love. Yes, you just said. And it's contemporary and sounds a bit tumultuous. Mm. Sounds good. Yeah. This has been long listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction, mm-hmm. which is the first time a trans woman has been long listed for that award. So yeah. that's pretty exciting and another reason why we thought it would be a good pick yeah. for next month. Yeah. On trend as always. That's us. What can we say? (laughs) (laughs) Happy reading. Yes. You'll find it in the collection. So put a hold. Follow us. Subscribe to the podcast. Join our Facebook group. Like us. Do all the things. All the stars. (laughs) (laughs) Tell your friends. We'll see you next month. (laughs) See ya. doing this entire episode in an English accent. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I can do that. I well, think you could. <laughs> Regency oh, well, we, era Regency. English accent. <laughs> Come now, Paula. Was that it? Let's do it in an English accent. <laughs> well, it's a bit more, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, I can't do it. Why not? Go let's on. See, let's see. Stand up, <laughs> Anthony grunted, so I can hit you again. Are you mad? Daphne <laughs> cried out. <laughs> Simon blinked in, dis- in surprise. No, that's not like posh. It's like, <laughs> that like cockney. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like your tone, Anthony Bridgerton. <laughs> Simon thought he heard Daphne choke on a chuckle. And wondered what that was all about. <laughs> A lot like your normal. Did it? Does it? (laughs) (laughs) See now. That's disappointing. (laughs) Don't use that English accent bit.